0: Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Jeff Colvin. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. How about you? I'm doing very well and very much looking for this conversation, partly because this week my students are assigned to watch a video of yours to start their class and a quick bio of you from your webpage. So the best companies and leaders win by confronting reality faster than the competition. Jeff Colvin of Fortune Magazine delivers valuable insights to help them do just that. His unique perspective stems from unparalleled access to top global business leaders. And I'm later going to say some leaders he's worked with, and they're really top stuff, who tell them what they're seeing, thinking, and doing. As a result, he can provide audiences with a clear path for an uncertain future. He unpacks actionable insights on the economic, market, political, and technological forces driving disruptive change. His columns and cover stories in Fortune have earned him millions of loyal fans, many of whom also hear him on the CBS radio network, where he reaches 7 million listeners each week. The author of four books. And the, so the big one that brought me to you is Talent is Overrated, What Really Separates World-Class Performance from Everybody Else. And then your latest book, now this one I've only, I haven't read, I only know videos of it, but Humans Are Underrated, right. uh, another New York Times bestseller, in which he looks at the future of work and how humans will fit into a workplace filled with robots and smart technology. Now I could go on from there and I'll come back to it a little bit later yeah. with the people. and But... I've been teaching leadership at NYU, which is where you got your MBA. Correct. For just about 10 years now. And I've been assigning students to watch a video of yours. It's you with Charlie Rose talking about talent is overrated because I teach a very experiential class. I'm not teaching them about leadership or leadership, what I call leadership appreciation. It was <laughs> reading and writing papers about leadership so I could identify a leader. But when I tried to practice it, I wasn't good at it. So my class is very experiential. And your stuff, it's really effective at, I want to practice this to get better at this. And I, I think it instills that in my students. They certainly rate it highly. It's, it's like, oh, this gets me going. And so I wondered why it happened not brought you on like 10 years ago. I mean, your book was a, it's still a big splash, but it was a bigger splash then. And I think it was partly because I didn't want to have the same conversation that you already had because it's such a wonderful conversation out there. But then I thought, no, there's a lot of stuff I can learn from him, and I think that I can bring out. I think also, I still love sharing everything about my books, and I suspect you probably do too. It's true. Talent is overrated. I want to start earlier than that. You have a firm, confident way of speaking and communicating that's really direct and clear, simple. Did you always know you were going to be a writer and speaker? How did you get started in this direction?
1: That's a really great question. And I'm not asked that very often. It's a really great question. Those things do actually, both of them go way back in my life. So, with regard to writing, I didn't always know I was going to do it. But I found early in life that I was getting a lot of good reinforcement for the writing I did. And I didn't know if I was really going to do it because I found it very, very difficult. I still find it very, very difficult. And I really do believe what Samuel Johnson said, you know, what is written without pain will be read without pleasure. And so it's just hard and it's going to be hard if it's going to be good. But, you know, going way back, I got a lot of good reinforcement for it. With regard to speaking, it's funny, as it happened, just by chance, our family was living in Ontario. When I was in the ninth grade or grade nine, as one says there, and there was a a required speaking program there, I shouldn't say it was required, but it was available to everyone and everyone was encouraged to participate at the beginning. And then they would say, okay, then uh, here's the best one from this class. And then several classes. Well, here's the best one. And I did really well. I had no idea I would do really well, but I, you know, I ended up on the stage in the auditorium for the big final ceremony. And so that really stuck with me. I realized to my surprise that people liked the way I did it. And it seemed like fun to me. So that's what got me going. And then we moved to Illinois, where there's a statewide high school competitive speaking program. Not every state has that, but they have it in Illinois. And so I got into that, and I you know, won some things and so forth. And so it just sounded better and better. So it all goes way, way back. It's followed up by years of deliberate practice? You know, that's right. Not that I knew that that's what it was at the time, but yes, I'm sure we'll get into the principles of deliberate practice, but the, absolutely, absolutely. And actually, speaking is a great endeavor in which to kind of think about deliberate practice and learn about deliberate practice because it can be applied very clearly in that.
0: I think it's time to jump into it. Can we jump into deliberate practice?
1: Absolutely.
0: I'll comment also that an outgrowth of it is that. It helps me set my priorities, what to work on. If I split my time and get okay at two different things, that's not nearly the life of getting really great at one thing. And it really helps to let other things go by the wayside. They become distractions as opposed to... Um, you know the story of Warren Buffett with the pilot? I think- I'll tell it really quick and hopefully put a link. So Warren Buffett, his pilot comes to him and says, I want to get really good at stuff. And Buffett says, all right, go off and make a list of your top 25 priorities. So the guy comes back and he says, okay, now take that list and break it into two parts. The top three or top five, I forget the right number, and the rest. So he goes and he comes back and he says, okay, I've gotten it. Buffett says to the pilot, why did I split them up into two parts? And he says, well, work on the top three or five, I forget, make those your priorities. And When you have time, work on the others. And he says, like work on the top three and the others avoid at all costs, never go near them. And it's really, that's been very useful. But also the idea of deliberate practice and like focusing on it, it really has helped me with that.
1: Yeah, I never heard the story. It's a great story. And it's so, well, like so much with Fuffet, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in it. Because one of the things that comes out of all the work that's been done on deliberate practice is that it is a road to greatness. We know what it is, but that doesn't mean it's easy or fast. It isn't. And if we look at the greatest performers, we find that they were almost always intensely focused on that one thing. And when one gets through all the discussion about deliberate practice and understanding how it works, you do come to this issue that everybody has to face, which is how far down that road do I want to go? And it's a real question. There are stories which we might get into, but some people just don't want to go all the way down. They don't want to go as far as it's possible to go because to go as far as it's possible to go down that road means it's going to consume your life. Mm-hmm. And that's fine for some people and it's not fine for other people. But anyway, that's, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but that is a really important point.
0: What is deliberate practice as opposed to regular practice as opposed to deliberate other things?
1: It's a great point. And the term is a little obscure. It doesn't really tell what it means. It comes from the researchers uh, who wrote some kind of foundational articles 30-some years ago. It's distinct from what most of us call practice because it has some very specific elements. And what most of us do and think we're practicing isn't deliberate practice at all. And my favorite or least favorite example is myself on the driving range at the golf course, where I think that I'm practicing. And I realized once I learned about deliberate practice, I wasn't doing anything, which certainly explained how poorly I play golf. But, uh, you know, (laughs) deliberate practice is something that is neither play nor work it is something in between it is a discipline that has some very clear elements and i can say what they are but it's only if you are doing those elements that it is really deliberate practice so really the thing to know about that term is that it describes a very specific way of getting better and You know, how is it? Well, it's just a few specific points. One, it's an activity that is designed for you. In other words, it is for you at this point in your development. That means it's going to change over time. The heart of it is that it is focused on something that you do until you can't quite do it. In other words, it's not an activity that pushes you way beyond your current abilities. And it's not an activity that is within your current abilities that's easy for you to do. It's an activity that pushes you just beyond what you're currently capable of doing. And that's because if it tries to push you way beyond, then you have no idea what to do. You're lost. You you can't do anything. And if it's an activity that you can do easily, then you're not going to develop. You're not going to learn anything. So it's constantly pushing you just beyond what you can do. It's typically something that can be repeated at high volume. The researchers on this just observed this when they were doing all the work on it. They didn't know exactly why it worked, but they knew that the greatest performers did this. Later research by brain specialists showed why that's so important. It's because of the way your brain develops. If you do certain things over and over at high volume, it actually strengthens the connections in your brain. There's a substance called myelin that builds up along some of the fibers in there. And so there's a good reason for that. And finally, it involves plenty of feedback. You can't get better if you don't know how you're doing. So you have to have some kind of feedback. It can be looking at yourself in a video. It can be having an expert coach observe you and give you the feedback, or it can be other things. But a couple of things to keep in mind here, and then I'll stop the description. Notice that there were two things where you need Input You need help from somebody else. One is the feedback, or at least it's very helpful to have somebody else giving it to you. And two, your deliberate practice activities have to be just right for you. Because as you get better, then you're going to need new activities to push you just beyond where you are. So those are two things for both of which it really, really helps to have a teacher, mentor, coach whatever you want to call it, but it is significant that the world's greatest golfers, for example, still have teachers. You know, most of us would think, well, they're the best in the world. What do they need a teacher for? They need a teacher precisely because they do deliberate practice and they need somebody to help them with it, even if they're the best golfers in the world. Anyway, I'll stop there, but that's what it is.
0: If you don't mind sharing about yourself, what was your golf like that was not deliberate practice? Yeah. I presume you didn't have a coach. <laughs> That's right. And what would have made the difference?
1: Right, a lot of things. So golfers will appreciate this in particular, but anyone could appreciate it. Golf is a difficult game. And uh, hitting a golf ball well is actually not as simple as the pros make it look, naturally. There are a hundred things you can be thinking about when you're trying to hit a golf ball. Golfers know what I mean, but there are a million things having to do with grip, stance, position of the ball, a million things. So, you know, I would go onto the driving range, get a bucket of balls, take a short iron, which is generally how they tell you to start for your practice session, and I'd have something in mind about how I should hit the ball. And eventually I'd hit a few okay, and then I'd hit them badly. But then I'd think about something else that might account for that. You know, then I'd move on to sort of longer irons and so forth. And, you know, I thought, well, I'm hitting a lot of golf balls and I'm thinking a lot. And sometimes I'm hitting some decent ones. You know, I guess that's practice. Well, of course, it's not at all. What I needed was somebody who could look at what I was doing, give me one thing to focus on, and have me do it, and give me feedback as I was doing it. And I have had lessons, and that's exactly what the coach does. And it makes an amazing difference. In one lesson, it makes a difference. But if you do that every day for a long time, it's amazing what it'll do. And in fact, I have to say, you know, I go and give talks on this from time to time. After one of the talks, someone who had read the book came up to me and said, you know, I did what you, and he was talking about golf. He said, I did what you said. You know, I started just focusing on one club. Every time I went to the driving range, you know, I just focused on hitting one club, the same one, time after time after time. And he got help. And he just basically, he adopted the deliberate practice framework. And he said he won the club championship uh, as a result. And it was great. It was not totally surprised. And in fact, one of the surprises to me, although it shouldn't have been, is that after the book was published, golf teachers, golf professionals around the country adopted it. And one of the greatest proponents uh, I've had for the book have been the teaching pros around the country. They all tell their students to get it. One other thing on the Topic of golf, Hank Haney, a guy who was the golf teacher for Tiger Woods for a while, wrote a book about his experience teaching Tiger Woods. And he says in his book that the way Tiger practiced was, in fact, deliberate practice as I described it. He mentioned the book, as I described it in the book. It really does work.
0: In one way, it's simple. Of course, if I get a coach to give me feedback, and tune it just for my level, of course I'll get better. It'll be hard. I know. Right. And now I'm thinking a lot of things that I took for granted. Like I do my calisthenics every day. Every morning, every evening, I do 20 minutes of calisthenics. I do a lot of, all these burpees. Yeah, it's great exercise. Yeah. And so I wonder, am I getting better at anything? Because I mean, certainly I'm getting fit. There, No question about that. I'm burning calories, developing coordination. And periodically... Do you know the book, The Champion's Mind by Jim Affernal?
1: It's familiar, but I don't know it well.
0: Sports psychology book. And it talks about if you really want to achieve gold,
1: right.
0: go for gold effort every time. And so now, even 10 years into it, well, I read the book a while ago. Yeah. I would start paying attention to like how, what effort I'm putting into it. Like how precisely am I doing this? And I don't have someone else looking at me, but I do periodically get things like that or someone will, I'll learn a different way of doing things. Yeah. But I think this would be shy
1: of deliberate practice. It is in a way. I mean, there are certain, you know, with the activity you're describing, you can easily enough set goals one way or another. I mean, you know, you could say, well, if I'm capable of doing X repetitions of a particular exercise, then I want to get up to, you know, X plus two repetitions or with 10% more weight on the bar or whatever it is you're doing. And that would, you know, that would help. But, you know, having the feedback is still important. And, you know, even in fairly simple exercises, there is form that really does make a difference, as you know.
0: The mental part of it is huge of saying I'm going to do it something and doing it despite the adversity. Right. There's another area of living sustainably where I'm also not getting direct feedback, but... Over the years, now maybe 10 years into this, I keep finding new challenges to do. Like at the beginning, it was avoiding packaged food. Mm -hmm. And at first, I didn't know how to prepare food from scratch. I didn't know how to not get packaged food. And so along the lines of there's cooking, there's gardening, and there's shopping differently, I'm constantly developing new skills. Now, I'm not getting outside feedback, but I'm getting really good at it. I don't know if I get a coach for like... I mean, I guess I could get a cooking coach or a gardening coach to get better at these things. Can it be something broad like that, like just living more sustainably? Would that qualify?
1: Well, it would. I mean, obviously, one has to make it, you know, specific. There have to be things that can really be focused on. I never thought about this either until just now. But (laughs) one could easily imagine that, okay, there are people who are experts in human activities that place a load on the environment one way or another. And I know there are people who have done a lot of research and so forth, and they could look at my life or your life and say, okay, the way you are stressing the environment the most in your life right now is this, or these two things, or whatever. So those are the things we'll have to work on. Now, how do you work on it? Well, Again, I know there must be people who could look at it and say, okay, the thing to change that would make the most difference right now is this. And you get the Mm -hmm. the point here. So it could start you down that road. And it's, in a way, it's not a high skill thing, it doesn't seem to me. Well, cooking could be. I mean, you know, that's kind of an adjacent thing. What would make the difference is just not eating the packaged food. The skill would be making food instead that you actually like. Mm -hmm. And sure, somebody could help you with that easily. So you can apply these things, these principles into all kinds of activities. That's for sure, because I've seen people do it.
0: The common measure that we hear is the the number of hours. Right. But it's the feedback, the coach, and the outside observation by someone. I guess the, the coach doesn't necessarily have to be that expert themselves, it sounds like. I mean, to be able to tell, they just have to see what you're doing off and Help construct it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. They don't have to be good at what you do, they have to be good at teaching what you do. And that's a different skill. And so that's why the world's greatest athletes can still have important teachers and coaches. They're not the world's greatest tennis players or golfers or anything else, but they may well be the world's greatest teachers the people who know the most about the physics, the bodily operations, all of this stuff that actually goes into being a great athlete. In your case,
0: being a speaker and a writer, does feedback from the audience, which might be it live or you know letters to the editor, yeah. does that count?
1: It counts, absolutely. And in fact, for performers, I have an example in the book about Chris Rock developing. His material for a big performance tour going around the United States uh, doing a show that's an hour and a half of comedy, which is a huge thing to develop. And what he did was build it up sort of one joke, one line at a time in small clubs around the country, just little places where he could test the material. And if you're in something like that, then yeah, actually, you are getting the feedback because the audience responds to everything you say, right? If you're in comedy, then the audience is telling you moment to moment whether you're funny or not. They're laughing or they're not. If you speak to business audiences like I do, it's not that easy because even though I try to be funny every once in a while, that's not the main thing. And so I'm not getting constant feedback from I can tell, you know, by looking and whether they're looking at their watches or whether they're you know, or whether they are just looking at me. But you do want to get real feedback somehow from that. And, you know, one of the best ways is to actually ask people to fill out a form at the end uh, with some questions. A lot of conference organizers do that for all their speakers. And I always ask for that feedback to be sent to me if they will do it, and often they will. I alluded earlier to
0: the people that you've worked with. And so now I'm going to go back to your bio here and read some of the people you've worked. Okay, so in addition to speaking, Jeff is a brilliant panel moderator, MC, and interviewer whose subjects have included Jack Welch, Henry Kissinger, Richard Branson, the Prince of Wales, Bill Gates, Alan Greenspan, Steve Case, Tony Blair, Michael Dell, Ted Turner, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Henry Paulson, Ben Bernanke, and many others. Now, I'm not sure if that means subjects include mean you've talked about them or also these are people who are up there.
1: No, the, that's, no, that's a good question. We should clarify that in the bio. Those are all people whom I have interviewed on stage in front of an audience. Do you develop relationships with them? I mean, do you become friends or contacts? Sometimes, but that really depends more on what happens off stage. Because when you're on stage, it's a performance. And there's a lot of skill involved with that. But at least I can get close to them. You know, I can enjoy it very much. But yes, some of them I've gotten to know quite well. But that's because of the talking before and after.
0: I can't help but ask any good examples of before and after cases that went really well.
1: Uh, Sure. I'll tell you a kind of a funny one. A few years ago, Hank Paulson, former Secretary of the Treasury, had written a book and was promoting it around the country. And he was doing it in part by speaking. Probably most people know there are these speakers series in many communities where you sort of buy a subscription for the season and then you can go see these speakers, one a month or something like that, over the course of the season. Well, Paulson, like a lot of famous people, doesn't really like to give a speech. He likes to be interviewed on stage instead. And so my job was for his speaking tour was to interview him on stage And we had four events in the San Francisco area, followed by four events in the Los Angeles area in a fairly short period of time. So we spent a lot of time on stage, but we spent a whole lot of time in the back of the car going to and from these events, from whatever hotel everybody was staying in. Sometimes it was a pretty long drive. So we spent a lot of time in the back of the car just talking to each other. And it was great. We really enjoyed it. And it does help the event. It was kind of funny because we could figure out what the laugh lines were, what the applause lines were. By the end, it was like a vaudeville act, <laughs> you know, word for word the same every time. And man, it was really working. When you say vaudeville,
0: for the audience, I could imagine that, in my experience performing, Yeah. I took a class in Meisner technique and I feel like the more repetition, I actually get more expression. You know, Before I learned it, I felt like acting over and over again was dull and repetitive, but it's actually more exploration, more discovery. Was it like that with you guys?
1: I think so, yeah, absolutely. Because we could figure out how people responded to certain things. And speaking for myself, I found that, you know, having to ask about some of these topics over and over did make me think more about them. Every time I would ask, I had, you know, I could think of some other aspect of this that I hadn't thought of before. It's a very good point because it it applies more broadly. Repeating stuff over and over doesn't make it boring. It makes you better if you are focused on getting better. And you said earlier, the mental part of this is really important. And it is absolutely important. What you are trying to do, what is going on in your head during the deliberate practice is actually what makes all the difference.
0: I might be asking too much here. I'd love to send you a copy of my book uh, because it's designed to give people exercises that if you practice them, you'll develop. Know, empathy and resilience sure. and things like that that I think for leaders are important, and maybe this is worth going to humans who are underrated because I feel like yeah I can't speak to it in as much depth, but I feel like one of the things that we learn is that if we're going to learn anything, learning empathy and storytelling and the things that to me are the skill the emotional and social skills of leadership are the place to really go.
1: First of all, what you are mentioning empathy storytelling are absolutely skills that I write about at considerable length in that book, Humans Are Underrated, because I agree with you and I've seen it, and I'm sure you have too, that those are deep skills that have always been valuable to leaders and I think are becoming more and more valuable as our economy progresses, as it's progressing. To my thinking, and I guess for yours too, Top of the list skills for somebody to have. And I'd love to see your book because most people, they hear about deliberate practice and so forth. And then they may hear or they may just intuit that empathy and storytelling are important. And then they say, well, okay, but how do you practice empathy or storytelling or any of the real life things, the real life skills that we have to use every day? And that's where a lot of people hit a block and they don't know where to go. So if you've thought about that and developed exercises, then that's a huge service. That's a huge advance. I believe I
0: have. And my belief is not necessarily what I've achieved, but yeah, I'd love to get your feedback on it. And when I was taking leadership classes in business school, before that, I didn't think you could learn to change yourself. Right. Then I started learning that you could. Now in school, I didn't learn to, I just learned that you could. The door was opened. But then as I practiced in life, I found I would practice these things to make connections with people and to read them better. And then I realized, oh, that's empathy. That's a skill that I didn't have before. I'm no Dalai Lama, but I'm farther along than I was before. And if I keep practicing this, I can get better at it. It's storytelling too. It's like, I thought, oh, I'm a pretty good storyteller. And then I realized, no, I'm not a very good storyteller. I'd like saying things, but that's not necessarily engaging to the other person. Definitely having an editor. You must have a great editor because that's a lot of feedback.
1: Yeah, that's one thing that I think writers learn to appreciate. A good editor is very valuable. Uh, I've often believed that fortune's kind of secret strength is the quality of the editors. Then that goes back a long, long time in the history of the organization. And actually also... A problem, I believe, in the book publishing industry is that more and more books are published with very little editing. And, you know, it saves money and time, but it makes for books that aren't as good as they could be.
0: Is editing deliberate? I mean, now now it got me thinking. It's definitely giving me feedback. It's not necessarily saying, like, do it differently. It's saying this is the result that, you know, the result isn't what you're trying for. Do it different.
1: Yeah, Yeah, you're exactly right. What the editor does is give you feedback, but he or she is not in the role of a coach or teacher in a deliberate practice setting. So you still have to do that. You still have to think of that and try to arrange that for yourself. And sometimes people do that. And in fact, I can tell you an example of that. I was on the phone not long ago with a U.S. senator, and I can't tell you which one, but He's a current U.S. senator who was familiar with Talent is Overrated and wanted to talk to me about it. And he has been using the principles of deliberate practice to get better at specific skills that he wants to get better at. For example, he wants to get better at being interviewed on TV. And so he decided to apply deliberate practice principles to that. So he first of all, got some people in his office to try to get him booked on TV often so that he could be doing a lot of TV interviews. And then he had people on his staff whose job it was to, you know, communicate with media and stuff like that, to watch his interviews and take detailed notes as feedback and give him the feedback. And he would study that and try to get himself booked for another interview and just continue the process. It takes some ingenuity to do the, you know, to figure out how to practice real life activities. And it's extra work. And this is an important point that I always make. Deliberate practice is clear, but it's not easy. It's more work than most people are doing. But What did you expect, right? You're not going to get great without doing a fair amount of work. It just really is effective. But anyway, it can be done in real life day-to-day skills. I'm really glad
0: I asked you this because it's both, yes, it's challenging. It takes more effort, but the effort isn't crazy. It's not like I have to get the best coach in the world. I just have to get that feedback and get that fine tuning.
1: That's exactly right. Those are the things you have to get In real life, you know, you have to figure out how to get them. In the research, we, you know, there's a lot of study of sports and music because those are real easy to study. In real life, it's just not that clear, but you can do it. That is the great story here, as you say. You can do it. You know what you need to get, and you can figure out ways to get it.
0: If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Now I'm going to switch to environment as we talked about before hitting record. Yes. I'm going to do a technique with you that I've been honing and after doing it, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. But so now I'm going to do it and you're probably going to do it. A lot of people do, which is both Do it and meta, kind of like observe what's going on, but hopefully not too much of the meta stuff yet. Right. So is the environment something that matters to you? Is it something you've acted on in some way? And when I say environment, I mean, you know, climate and overpopulation and extinctions and things like that.
1: Is it an issue for me? Is it something that's important? Yes. Yeah. And is it enough that you've in some way changed your behavior? Yes, but probably just in minor ways. Meaning I do think almost all the time about Whether I could use less of something, whether I can make it last longer, and I'm getting really good at that. You know, and recycle, absolutely. I go to some pains to make sure stuff is recycled. Now, I'm nowhere near where you are, I have to say. I still get on airplanes and stuff like that. But I do take some steps of my own.
0: Well, that intent is what I'm looking at. Yeah. The intent tells me that you've processed and when you think about the environment enough to act. What motivates you, and I don't mean what goals are you trying to achieve in the future, yeah, but what is inside you that says there's something worth acting on? yeah when you think of nature, what is it?
1: That's a great question because I have to confess i'm not thinking about you know pressure on the environment from a growing population, and I'm not specifically thinking about how CO2 acts in the upper atmosphere and so forth. Honestly, what I'm thinking about is my own love of the outdoors and how important that has been in my life since my earliest memories. Not only, you know, just the beauty of it, but also the animals, you know, just everything about the natural environment experience. To me, it's not just sort of nice. It's nourishing. It's essential. It's for my mental, emotional, spiritual life. That's what gets me motivated to act.
0: Do you have specific memories? I mean, you said your earliest memories. Is there a scene in your head? Is
1: there something that you think about? Yeah, there are lots of them. I was born and raised in South Dakota. So I lived my life outdoors for my entire childhood. So there are many memories that I have, many specific scenes. You know, we were down in the southeastern corner of the state near the Missouri River. Believe it or not, there are sand dunes along the Missouri River there with poplar trees growing and just a beautiful, beautiful setting that I loved. You know, my friends and I would go down and just walk around the river, you know, take little boats into the river. I remember a million things like that. Yes.
0: I had my mom as a guest on this podcast as well. And she grew up in South Dakota near you. And she talked about just barefoot everywhere. Yes. And even on gravel. And so I'm also picturing you on the banks of this river, sand, but also the poplars. Yeah. And... A spirituality that i would guess as a kid you're not thinking oh this is spiritual but reflecting later probably
1: that's exactly right
0: these memories these feelings these emotions i invite you at your option to think of something you could do today yeah to manifest those things to act on those emotions where you are now Mm -hmm. and notice i didn't say something i didn't say what's the most important thing you could do for the environment or what will save the world or what will fix all the world's problems overnight. It may have some effect on the world, but that's secondary. With three constraints. One is that it's something that you're not already doing. Mm -hmm. Something that you do with your own hands. So if you want to organize other people to do it also, that's fine. But as long as you're doing something yourself, but generally something that doesn't depend on others makes it a lot easier. And something that has some physical components so that afterward you can say, this left the world in some non-zero way, in my opinion, better than I found it.
1: Right.
0: You know, most people, they, they, there's nothing that, that immediately comes to them, so there's a bit of like a couple minutes of back and forth to figure things out. Yeah. But if you're up for it to do it, then I'd ask you to share a second time how it went.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That sounds excellent to me.
0: Does anything come to mind of a direction to go in of something you might do?
1: Well, so that's what I'm trying to think. As you were describing it, I was trying to, okay, well, what might that be? I'm not sure. I have to think about it. So now, I mean, yes, now I've got those pictures in my mind of childhood in South Dakota, but what I imagine is that what I think of needn't be something that would actually literally apply to those scenes, although it could.
0: Inspired by them or related to them or the emotions related?
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay.
0: And most people, this is the usual process of like, Yeah. "Hmm, let me think about
1: it. Can I think of anything that prevents people from having an experience like that today?
0: That's the direction a lot of people go in.
1: Is that right? That's it. Yeah.
0: If that's not here, how can I bring it? Or if people can't reach it, how can I help them? Something like
1: that. Yeah. Yeah. I live in Connecticut, but at the moment I'm in, Steamboat Springs, Colorado, Uh where we have a little condo. And so, you know, I'm looking out the window at some beautiful mountain snow covered scenes and thinking, okay, well, what you know, what about here? What could I do?
0: It's often hard, but then something clicks and they're like, oh, I can do because a lot of people are thinking scale, like, yeah, will this fix the world? Right. But that's an interesting question too, but that's not this.
1: Right. Right. You know, so now I'm thinking, okay, is there anything I could do here to try to get people, somebody, you know, just out and in parts of the area where they haven't been? And all I mean by that is, you know, I've hiked all over This area. And I end up in places where you don't see a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it's unbelievably gorgeous. Uh, Yeah. So is there some way I could bring more people to have that experience and thus become more motivated in some way?
0: If you're thinking that direction, I would guide you toward thinking of yourself. What could you get to one of these places or not go to uh, not those places? Right. Because once you bring other people in, it generally makes it a lot harder.
1: Well, that's a great point, actually. Because I could get, in other words, take myself tomorrow. Just put the boots on and go to places I haven't seen.
0: Yeah. And now there's a constraint that if you start driving all over the place, whatever you do has to be greater than the driving.
1: Absolutely. And I'm a big believer in that. I mean, there's a mountain very nearby. Well, it's not huge, but you know, it's like 10 or 11,000 feet. And what I have done is gone from this condo to the top of that mountain and back. You know, just walking out the front door and walking the entire way. It's not a huge thing, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it was a little trek that took probably, you know, seven hours. And there's much more I could do in that way. I like the idea. I've always liked the idea of Mm -hmm. doing these things, you know, where it's I start doing it from the front door. I don't drive any place.
0: That has a very South Dakota feel to it.
1: Yeah, it does. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: That would fit the bill, especially if you're not driving, if you're biking or walking. Yeah. I suspect that if you do that deliberately. Yes. And you want others to experience it too, you'll get them faster by doing it yourself first.
1: Absolutely. That's a great point.
0: And if while you're doing that, on top of that, you're not watching TV or something else that would be drawing power at home, then yep. if substituting going out in nature for enjoying technology is the thing that you do. That would fit all my criteria.
1: Right. Well, first of all, I mean, everything you do when you're indoors, I wouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. I already watch television three or four times a year, basically. So that's not a big use. But of course, I'm online constantly in three different ways always. So there would be less of that. Mm
0: -hmm. So the next step is to make it a smart goal. Specific, yeah. measurable, achievable, realistic timeout. So could right. you think of a specific, if it's a walk to a mountain, can you make it specific?
1: Yeah, I can. There's a local hill that I could go up from here mm-hmm. and back. And it would be a very substantial walk doing the whole thing on foot. But, you know, doable in a day. So yeah. So let's say that.
0: And if you yeah. find one better, instead, yeah. do the better one. And I'd love to have you on a second time and ask how it went.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like, when could I do it?
0: Yeah. When could we schedule a second conversation? I mean, it could be a month from now. It could be tomorrow. It could be, but, you know, giving you time to do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd have to do it on a weekend because I'd want to take basically a day to do it. Mm -hmm. But that could be either this weekend or next. You know, there's no reason. Not anything that has to be very specifically scheduled or hard to schedule. So it'd be this weekend or next. So, you know, that's at most two weeks from now to get it done. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you know, any time to talk more.
0: So then I propose after we stop recording, before we hang up, to put on a schedule, a second conversation, if that works for you. Absolutely. That's the first part of the Spodek method. Actually, if you want, I could describe what I did, like the four steps. Yeah. All right, so I'll describe it now. Well, there's a the zeroth step, which is, is the environment something that matters to you? Yeah. I've never gotten a no to that. I'm so sure. that's why I don't count it as like, Right. everyone says yes in some way. Right. Then I say, what does the environment mean to you? Right. And I have to stay there long enough. Most people, their first answer is something like Bangladesh or you yeah. know something that they read on the front page. Yeah. But that's not actually the personal experience. So I stick with them, usually confirming and clarifying and not talking about myself, just letting them share. Some people feel very vulnerable around here because everyone's been judged on this. And the usual is to show how much you care by the amount of outrage that you express or the amount of blame that you can give. That's all fine and well, but that's not this. You know, I'm trying to get to sensory feedback and memories and emotions. So that's step one. Step two is, I invite you at your option to think of something you can do to manifest those, to act on those things. I have to say before they answer, I didn't say what's the most important thing you can do. If I ever don't say that and someone says, oh, but it doesn't matter what I do, I've never gotten out of that hole. This step takes a while, the three constraints. It's not something you're already doing. You do it yourself. It's got a physical component. That way they can't say it's just a book or watching documentary And here, there's a big logjam of what can I do to fix the world? I'm not sure what you were thinking, but that's what a lot of people think. And by the way, I've had this exercise to me many times. I've been on both sides of it many times. And I'm constantly doing new things. Usually, this takes a while. And something happens where the person often says, Oh, you mean I can just do X? Oh, I didn't think that was really that big of a deal. But it's manifesting those values. Those are the two leadership steps of intrinsic motivation, emotions. And then the next two steps are the management steps. Make it a smart goal right. and schedule a second conversation, which is making it accountable. Yep. Now comes the big step of you doing the thing. Right. Rarely someone will come back to me and say, you know, it didn't, I didn't feel like doing it. <laughs> that hasn't happened in a long time. Yep. As I've gotten more listening to them for the first time. This thing that you're going to do, yep. walking up to this, you yep. say hill, I'm sure that for <laughs> a Colorado and a hill means... A... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I walked you through the process to come up with it. Yeah. Are you doing this for me?
1: Well, I mean, I'm doing it because, you know, we had this conversation, but it's something I would love to do. I've done something like it before many times, and I love it. So, you know, I'm going to get a lot out of it. I can't wait, actually.
0: I've had this process done me many, many, many times. And a lot of people think, like, Josh, you're already doing, you're so extreme. Yeah. But when it's having, when, when it's fun, when it's rewarding, I'm, I, I'm extremely fun. It, yeah. it, there's no extreme, like, it's, and people keep, they ask me, what does the environment mean to you? And I come up with new things all the time. There's, there's no shortage of connection with the environment. Right. We are living the first time in all of human history when you can't just walk to a forest anytime you want. And I mean, I got Central Park, but like go to India or, or the favelas in Brazil and there's, there's no plants at all. But, when you do act on these things, when I come, up with some, I come up with new things all the time. When someone does it with me, I don't know what's going to come up. And in fact, today in class at NYU, we're going to do this exercise and I'm going to have someone do it with me and I'm going to come up with something I don't know what it's going to be. And then it's always joyful. It's coming from inside. I believe this is a switch that I want to, this is the new book I'm working on, is how to take this process and scale it up to lots and lots of people so that we reconnect And we act for the environment not because we have to, although we do if we want to reverse a lot of the problems, but because we get to, because it manifests these things that we all have in us. Now, when you have the experience, you'll probably be thinking about this. You'll probably be thinking about the Missouri River. Yeah. I'm not sure. And when we come back, you say you're looking forward to it. You're going to love it. I predict that you're going to love it more than you expect for reasons that Well, only through experience will they come out. Right,
1: right. I mean, that is clear already. I will go with a different mind this time, even though it's a type of thing I've done often.
0: One day I will have this conversation with the CEO of Delta, McDonald's, Exxon, and they have their Missouri River. Mm -hmm. And I believe that they want to say, I will love this too. Mm -hmm. They want to manifest these things And yes, there are arguments to be made that we should let the free market operate as best it can, as that means more money to fossil fuels for the time being. I can see that argument. But I think this will change things. And these are elements of my strategy that hopefully you're seeing, and probably next time we'll talk more. But I'd love your thoughts on just this little bit.
1: I have to say, I've never heard an approach like this before. I had no idea what it was going to be, and I've never heard anything like it. It seems really valuable to me because since this topic is in the news all the time, we read about it and think about it in a way like we think about everything else that's in the news, and it isn't like everything else in the news. It does have this personal element for everyone, and that's what, You are mining, as it were. And that just sounds to me like a brilliant approach. I'm really intrigued by this. And I can imagine that it's very effective. I'd be interested to know what kind of follow-up talks you've had with it. I'm imagining that it reaches people in a way that no other approach to the subject reaches them
0: it emerged from when I first challenged myself to avoid packaged food. You know, I stopped eating meat, I stopped eating hydrogenated oil, I stopped eating corn syrup. And those are interesting. And that led me to think of a challenge I could give myself. You know, I, I saw how much garbage I produced and I knew that I couldn't fix all the world's problems by myself, but I could take responsibility for my garbage. Now, I'm in Manhattan. I don't even have to cross the street to get the cuisines of like five different cuisine. you know, and these chefs, Train their whole lives to be great chefs. How could I possibly compete with that? I thought I was taking on for the team and sacrificing, depriving myself. I found the opposite. I found it took time of learning how to shop at a farmer's market. And I joined a CSA, which meant, you know, I walk up to 16th Street and I pick up the food that was dropped off for me. And it's cheaper. But the big thing was that it's fresh from the farm. And I get ingredients I didn't know what they were. And my rule is nothing is wasted. So I'm cooking with like tomatillos, which I never did before. I didn't know what they were, as one example. Rutabagas. I'd heard of it. It was kind of a joke. It kind of sounds funny. But they started tasting better and better and better. And then I realized, I'm eating better. It's faster, more convenient, cheaper, and more healthy. That was totally missing. No one ever told me it would be better. I really thought it would be awful. And this is beyond most people's imagination. but not flying has led me to discover more culture, more cuisine, more connection with my family, not less. This was all missing. And I realized it was this personal element, this intrinsic element that i had been teaching leadership for years and coaching leaders and applying leadership to the environment. It took me a while to, my early attempts were very misguided. And I had to refine and refine and refine. You know, Ike Eisenhower said, loosely uh, paraphrasing, it's leadership is the art of getting the other guy to do your thing for his reason. It's not that insightful to take something that works in one area and apply it, but that works, that's very effective. So I did that. What I discovered was, unlike almost every other field, there's lots of wedge issues where people disagree. Abortion. But there's a lot of issues where people tend to agree, like education. Everyone wants education. But even there, there's lots of disagreement. On the environment, everyone wants clean air, clean water, clean land, healthy food. Everyone. And so I know that if I ask what the environment means to you, there's always, always something there. Something deep, meaningful, resonant, something that will motivate, something that excites passion and... That's my favorite part of the podcast is asking that question, and getting an answer. I've never been to the Missouri River. I've been to rivers. Yeah. It's vivid in my mind when you describe it to me, even though I'm, I'm sure it looks different. But I love that. No two people have given me the same answer twice. I'm sure. And no one has given me a boring answer. Some people hear, oh Josh, it's great that you get people to do these little things. It's not little, it's not big versus little. That's management, which is fine. This is intrinsic versus extrinsic. Because I'm not going to say that little things don't add up, they might. But if you do this and you like it, you'll do more. And next time you'll bring someone with you, something like that. I'm not sure. And it'll be bigger and it'll spread. Big things that spread, that adds up. There's still the doing, there's a lot to do, and the clock is ticking from the scientists' predictions of the tipping points and so forth. But it's a joyful process if done right.
1: That's a great message to me, that it's a joyful process. Nobody thinks of it that way.
0: I mean, Bangladesh is a serious situation. But if the Missouri River is in your heart, the fastest way there to helping Bangladesh is through your own right. intrinsic, what matters to you.
1: <laughs> <sighs> yeah, but it's entrancing and inspiring.
0: Another thing that motivates people is what the five people around you are doing, or you know, whatever the right number is. So someday, when Oprah's on the podcast, or we do our primetime special together, something like that, if 100 million people know her, probably more, that's 100 million people 20% of the way to acting. Right. Her manifesting her Missouri River. Not, this is what you have to do. Did you know this fact about this thing? I'm not saying we shouldn't share the science and discover more. That's being done. And by all means, I'm not saying stop that. I'm not even slow it down. But this is something that I believe essential.
1: I'm with you. I'm glad you're doing this.
0: I sense this is the right time to say, let's pick up here next time. I think so. Okay. And then we'll pick up with your experience and we'll hear how it goes. There's a set of questions that I'll ask next time as well. I can't even tell you what the questions are going to be. Okay. It's going to be, how did it go? What were the emotions? Did it affect any relationships? Okay. Sounds great. Great. Then anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or anything you want to leave the listeners with?
1: The only thing I want to leave listeners with actually having to do with, you know, deliberate practice and great performance and so forth. Really, the big message there is that where great performance comes from, in any realm of any kind, very broadly defined, where great performance comes from, is not what many people believe. The research is clear. The experience is clear. It isn't reserved for a preordained few. It is available to you and to everyone.
0: Jeff Colvin, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support please donate at com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.